Today we begin a new series, so let's be opening our Bibles up and uh, getting ready to study the book of Daniel. It's a very exciting book in the Bible and uh, hotly debated over the centuries, also very inspiring, a lot of uh, prophetic messages that we're going to dive into over the next several weeks, and just some very inspiring texts. So before we get into that, yesterday there were three devices that set off two explosions. A pipe bomb in New Jersey, explosion right here on 23rd Street, and then a pressure cooker with wire sticking out of it found on 27th. It's scary. It's unsettling. And it can feel like a nightmare. A surreal one. Not sure what's real and what isn't. And just sort of waiting as the news gives us information. I was finishing up my preparation for this lesson uh, yesterday and I started seeing the news and of course we live right here in Chelsea and a couple of avenues away from where the explosion happened. And after we put the kids to bed, I found myself going back and forth between checking in with the news and working on the message. And what happened was I was in two different worlds, like high alert in Chelsea, threat to New Yorkers, and then I'm reading about Israel being under threat, and they're ransacking the temple. And then I'm looking at the news, people are, you know, near the explosion, were hurt, and they're being taken to the hospital. And then I'm back in Jerusalem, besieged 3,000 years ago, many taken back to Babylon as slaves. And I was feeling like things started to look very similar in the pain and the plight of what the Israelites went through that many years ago. And I want to look at a scripture in Isaiah chapter 39 before we even get to the text in Daniel today. So please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 39. You know, the commentaries all say pretty much the same thing about the theology, about the message of Daniel, that it is about God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of violence, in the midst of fear-mongering, God's in charge and that he's always got eyes on the situation, understands what's going on and has a plan. And I think if there's any lesson that we could have even planned for today, that's the lesson we need to hear today is that God is in control despite the chaos and despite all the many things that are outside of our control. Amen. Isaiah chapter 39. I'll put it up here on the screen as well. This is about 750 B.C. And this prophetic message here in verse 6 says, The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And we'll stop there for a moment. God knew what was going to happen almost six generations after Isaiah prophesied this message. God knew it. And so jumping ahead, you can start turning your Bibles over to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to use that text to remind us that God knew what was about to go down. In 605 BC, Israel's wicked kings are costing them their nation. Assyria had already done it. And now Babylon is moving in to take over and to reign over God's people. 
And let's actually look into Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and see how accurate Isaiah's prophecy really was. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And we'll stop there. This is a people defeated, their sacred and ancient articles of faith stolen, and then their descendants taken from them to be brainwashed into a new culture. What did Isaiah say was going to happen? These exact words, 150 or more years before it actually took place. God knew what was about to go down. Isaiah was prophesying Israel's worst nightmare, and God knew it was going to happen. The Jews reading this at the time were going through continued oppression under Babylon. And so they needed some encouragement. They they needed some uplifting words. They needed to know that their God had not forgotten about them. Because if you were to hear that your God knew something bad was about to happen to you and still let it happen, what would you think? God doesn't love me anymore. God is abandoning me. And so they needed this book to tie into the reasons why God had not abandoned them. Quite the opposite, was loving them more and perhaps deeper than he had before. When I say encouragement, you know, many of us, when we go through hard times, don't we need encouragement? Don't we want encouraging words to be said to us? Don't we crave for someone to affirm or validate what we're going through? And you know, when you think about this word, encourage, it literally is talking about infusing courage into your soul to give you some extra faith and bravery to go through what you're going through. This is what this book is all about. And it starts with one person. His name is Daniel. Daniel's a special dude. And at this time, him and his buddies are about 14 or 15 years old. And so as you read through the context of his story, beginning here in chapter one, remember, we're talking about a teenager with incredible faith. Even his name is inspiring. The word Daniel in the old Hebrew means God is my judge. God is my judge. You know, and to walk around with a name like that, in a world where there were a lot of other gods being worshipped, what he's saying is, no, no, I'm going to be judged by my God. I don't recognize that all of your gods, the Mardukes and the Bell and the Aeux and all the people we're about to meet, I'm going to tell you about their gods. I don't even recognize that they have the authority to judge me. Only my God has the power to judge me. His name is an affront to the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to share with you something up here. There's this interesting cultural thing that happens in the church, this idea of don't judge me, right? And in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, Paul talks about it. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. 
And, and, you know, there's this vernacular that can seep into the church like, you know what? I'm judged by God alone. And, you know, you try to help me out or challenge me in something or help me to work on my humility or work on my love. You know what? I don't care because I don't believe anyone can judge me. Only God judges me. I don't know. Maybe you've ever maybe you've ever heard that before in the church. Uh, if you've never have heard it before in the church, perhaps you'll hear it today or maybe not since I'm talking about it right now. But it can happen. It's sort of the smokescreen of don't get in my business because, you know, we don't judge in the church. And it's so interesting to get into this text because uh, we can be tempted with this. Um, my warning to us is be careful because if there's anything in your heart that does need judging, the Lord God Almighty who sees all is going to bring it out and he's going to be intense and serious. And if any judging going to happen, he's going to bring it. And it's probably going to be more serious and swift than any human will give. So you want to be really careful, and we just need to keep reading in the text, because if you keep going in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Yeah, how many times have we done something? Oh, I'm good. And I prayed about it. Did it. It's great. Man, my conscience is clear. But what is Paul saying? There's still room for the idea that even though you prepared as much as possible, it still might have hurt someone's feelings or messed somebody else up. So you may not be innocent. And so we're open to the idea that we live in a community where we care about each other. So if we hurt each other, we need to resolve it, figure it out, and put our convictions aside for a minute and make sure we hear the other side and work at it together. See, oh, I'm not judged by anybody. Well, actually, in the church, it says that we do judge one another in love. We speak the truth in love. We are involved in each other's lives. We belong to one another, and we help each other through the good and the bad times. It continues. Therefore... Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And he will expose the motives of the heart. So, no, we can't pull the whole, you can't judge me and all that. Because the Lord wants us to be involved in each other's lives, to do so in love. And to realize, ultimately, that he's going to bring everything out in the open. You know, if you jump back in the Daniel text in verse 3. There's some really interesting things that start happening with Daniel the teenager and his few buddies. This guy named Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, is charged by the king to train and teach these young people to absorb into their culture. And a lot of things happening, I'm going to call it blending identity. This idea, teach or train, even this word, this word gadal, it means literally to make them great. To make them great Babylonian citizens. To absorb them and assimilate them into our culture. To train them up and to add to the wonderful greatness that is Babylon already. It was actually a great military strategy. It's the classic dominance subordination structure. We're going to bring you in. We're going to dominate you. You're going to be subordinate. And eventually you'll learn our ways and you will exist in our structure and under our leadership. To completely defeat a people, you can't just defeat them physically, and Babylon knew that. You have to also defeat them mentally, emotionally, spiritually even. And if you assimilate the best and the brightest of their culture into yours, the goal would be that their culture would completely erase, and that would become totally Babylonian. And this is one of the reasons why they give them new names. So they say, hey, your name is Daniel. God is my judge, is what it means in the Hebrew. Well, you're now going to be called Belteshazzar which means Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, the Lord, is gracious. Well, we're going to change it to Shadrach, 
the command of Aku. Mashiach, who is like the Lord. Well, it's now going to be Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah, the Lord is my helper, now Abednego, servant of Nego or Nebo. What they have done, even with their identity, their names, is to try to convince them that no longer do they worship their one God, the Hebrew God, but that they are assistants and trainee to become servants of the Most High of the gods of the Babylonians. So this was a cultural genocide attempt to pull all the Hebrews in, erase their culture, and train them in the new way. That would be a tough situation to be in. Not only were they attempting this massive cultural genocide, killing to do so, violence to do so, but with these young people, they gave them a lot of what they might have desired. See, you can do it in a few different ways. You can bait someone with the stick. Sometimes you bait them with the carrot. So what did they give them? They gave them the best the world could have to offer in the king's palace to give them pleasure, to give them access to all kinds of intellectual circles, to books, to mathematics, to philosophy, to physical training. The blending identity stopped at no point. Whatever you wanted, whatever you needed will give you, your desires will be met, become completely Babylonian. And on top of everything, I don't know what your love language is, but one of mine is food. You want to encourage me? It's pretty simple. I love it. I love food. It stops me in my tracks. I could talk about food for hours. Many times in sermons, I've been corrected afterwards because food makes it in the message too often. It gets a little distracting. I have to work on that. Even now, I'm going down that road. But it's biblical. And let me tell you why. The word food that's used here in Daniel chapter 1 is actually poorly translated to the word food. The better translation for this original language, the way it was written many, many years ago, is actually a qualifier and then the word food. Rich food. Food doesn't even cut it. It was the richest affair. It was the best Babylon had to offer. The best plate of whatever you wanted, the best drink. It was so good, you'd be drooling as they served it up. Many of us go to brunch on Sunday after church, right? You're thinking about it now. Oh, I didn't eat breakfast. I'm getting ready. You know, we start to salivate. We can become even emotional when we get food or not get food, right? There's a word that's been going around for a while, hangry, right? If if you're hungry and you haven't eaten in a while, you could get real hangry, right? Where you're just, your blood sugar's off. You haven't gotten some food. And man, especially if that's your love language, you're in need. So you're vulnerable emotionally, right? And on the opposite way, when you get it, oh gosh, sort of get away with anything with that person, right? Like, hey, dad, I need some money. Oh, I'm so full. This is so good. Take whatever you want. You know, we become more vulnerable. So this is one of their ways in. And and that's just one way. But I want to get you the picture of what Daniel and his buddies were going through. The lavish lifestyle in the palace for three years training to be raised up to be assistance to the very king himself. Now, check this out. Not only was it hard enough with the temptations, But all the other exiles are doing it too. Daniel, as he thinks about refusing, is put up against quite an avalanche of peer pressure. Everyone else is doing it. Why is that such a bad thing? Well, see, the Hebrews were kosher. They 
they couldn't eat certain foods and most of the meats that they were serving them were not drained out of all the blood and that was a very sacred thing and so you don't eat the meat with blood still in the animal and that was just one thing that the Hebrews distinguished themselves from the world in and here they're offering him all this food and all this drink he says no and as he's, he's processing he, the weight against him the peer pressure and the fact that they're 900 miles away from home who's going to hear about it back there They're not in Jerusalem anymore. And then you can start rationalizing. Well, you know, God didn't protect me up to this point. Why should I continue to protect his commandments? So all this pressure. You know, doesn't the world offer us something very similar? Doesn't the world offer us the very best it has to offer to meet our desires, our wants, our our needs? And food and drink and parties and VIP treatment and promotion and networking opportunities are all thrown at us. And in and of themselves, they might seem relatively harmless. But too often in our worlds, it's attached with an agenda, with a compromise inlaid in the fine print. Well, I'll give this to you, but then I'm going to expect something back. Leverage. Quid pro quo. Because that's the world. It's the utilitarian way. That too many people live. And I think it gets at the very core of our faith. The real question of today and throughout this series is, do I trust God? Do I trust God? Here's Daniel in the midst of the situation. This is only the beginning of many different challenges that he's going to go through. And isn't it so easy at the beginning, the easier challenge to maybe give in a little bit and to blend in a little bit. But then as it gets harder and harder, our stance becomes more vague and more vague becomes more challenging to stand up for what we believe in. So it's a question of, do I trust God? It was fear that moved so many hearts to break, to compromise, to give up what they believed about their Lord. And still today, that is our struggle. 2016, New York City. We have fears. What's going to happen if I don't blend in? What's going to happen if I stand out too much? What's going to happen if I'm distinguished because of my faith? And the fear sets in. You know, what's the opposite of faith? Some say it's cowardice, fear. I think fear and faith are opposites. You know, faith is not the absence of fear. It's still being able to trust a God in the midst of fear. And that's what inspires me so much about faithful people. We can ask ourselves the hard question, well, if I don't go to the party after work that everyone's going to, and I know what that's going to look like, then I'm going to be seen as different. I'm going to be treated differently. I'm going to have less respect in my working world. I'm going to have less of a rapport with the people that I'm networking with. It might cost me my job. And we extrapolate out the fear of standing out. If I don't flirt, if I don't drink, if I don't assimilate, I'll be laughed at, I'll be ostracized, I'll be shunned, I'll be left out, and that's scary, and that, I'm afraid of that. And then it starts to eat away at our faith. Now let me ask you a question. What does Daniel do? As you scroll through the rest of the text, as you read a little bit beyond verse 4, we don't have time to read it right now, but many of us know it, and I'll tell you what happens. Does Daniel stage a gigantic protest? No, he doesn't. See, some of us are extremists. We're like, fine then. You know, if I'm not going to blend in, then I'm, oh, I'm going to stand out. Oh, watch out. Oh, I'm going off. I'm writing a memo out to everybody. I'm going to stand up on my desk in the cubicle and start preaching. I'm going to go off. Everyone will. I'll get fired from my faith. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, you know, 
the, the extremists. What does Daniel do? If he's, if he's a good example for us, in the text for a reason, does he do that? No? Okay? Does he kick and scream? Does he quit? Does he run away? None of the above. Here's what he does. He resolves and then he responds. He resolves and then he responds. We're going to look at a couple scriptures here as we continue through Daniel chapter 1. He resolves in verse 8 to not defile himself. That is a conviction. That is something he believes in his core regardless of circumstance. If you want to write, if you're taking notes, write these words down. Conviction and circumstance. Conviction is not defined by circumstance. If things are good, your conviction is still straight. If things are bad, your conviction is still straight. That's what conviction is. It's an unmoving belief and faith in God Almighty and His Word and what we stand for as disciples of Jesus. What do you believe? How does your faith inform you in the situations that you're in? And I think it's important to look at the text because there's verse 8 first and then verse 9. Verse 9, we get to it and, and there's, you know, he starts to offer up a suggestion, respond to what's going on. But the order is important. You start with your conviction and then you respond. It's easy to, to do the other way around, isn't it? It's easy to react or respond first and then figure out and sort out the convictions later. Right? Well, I was just in the moment. I got cut off on the sidewalk. I got angry. I let him have it. I responded. Then later I thought about my convictions. Hey, I'm sorry. Sorry, God. Isn't it the ideal, though, to be able to resolve, to get it right with the Lord, and then to respond in the way he would want? That's our goal. It was interesting, you know, Arlene and I, my amazing wife of over 15 years, incredible, um, you know, we have a perfect marriage. We never have a disagreement. Now, yesterday she called me and there was a situation and uh, we got into an argument on the phone. And, uh, you know, she had thought through something and then called me to talk about it. I was re- on the receiving end and I hadn't really thought through what she was saying. And so I start to respond before I tapped into my resolve. Whoops, thank you. And uh, it came off aggressive and accusatory, and it hurt my wife's feelings. Isn't that sad? No one can relate to that, huh? And on the phone, it's the worst, right? Because it's like all that, you know, can't see the person. So we talked about it many hours later, followed up, worked it out. I had messed up did my apology, and and we resolved it, amen, especially before church on Sunday. Um, And and it's just important to tap into this idea. This is very real stuff for us. Every day of our lives, we are in relationship with people, and it's too easy to do what I did and just react instead of making sure that our faith informs our life decisions. Too often, our faith is scheduled around our decisions. We have the job we have because we wanted that job. We, we have the relationships we have because we want those relationships. It's all about what pleases us as opposed to God first in our lives. That's why I do what I do. That's why I'm in the relationships that I'm in. It has to come first. And Daniel gives us that example. Daniel gets it straight with God first. He resolves 
with the right convictions, then the plan is revealed. The order is important. And if you look at verse 9, back in your text, you'll see it. It says, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. What I love about the order is that when you get it on straight with God, oh, he wants to bless it. You see, he saw that Daniel put him first. And I think God ran into the situation and says, how can I, how can I work this out for you? He runs to bless his children as we put him first in our lives. And you're going to see this theme throughout the book of Daniel, and especially in this chapter. We've already been seeing God is the one that gave over his people. God is the one that delivered them into the enemy's hands. And here God is the one that's with Daniel and changes Ashpenaz's heart in order to work it out in Daniel's favor. God is always involved. He's never left your side. He loves you. He'll chase you down to the end of the earth to help you to have a right relationship with him. You can never doubt God. He's on your side. He's an anchor for your soul. And when the circumstances are insane and chaotic and uncontrollable, he is in charge. That's the God we honor. That's the God we worship today. And I want to close it out as we talk about what happens at the end of this story. Daniel comes up with this plan. The 10-day test. And in verse 12, the 10-day test, it's basically, you know, they, they got some, you know, some people that are, eating all the meat and the drink and everything. And here Daniel's feeling like that's going to defile me. So him and his three buddies say no. And Ashpenaz is like, please don't get me in trouble. You know, you're going you're to not perform as well in the king's palace. That's going to get me in trouble. I could lose my head, not just my job. And so what happens? Well, he says, okay, here's the deal. Give us 10 days, just a week and a half. Feed us only veggies, all right? That's it. And at the end of 10 days, veggie and water, then compare us to the people that ate all of the palace food. And sure enough, they came back and they were looking good. All right. Passed the test. God helped them through it. And uh, I believe there's even some diets out there that follow this exact diet, like the different things that they ate. Healthy people. So anyways, the 10 day test happened. And I love this, what it says in verse 20. If you guys want to look there now. It says, in every matter of wisdom, this is after the end of their training, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. You know, as we close out part one, I want to issue a challenge to our church. I want to give you the ten-day test. You guys ready? 10-day test. I want you to pick one thing that you feel is a fear in your life. It's a temptation, a test of your faith, a weakness, whatever it is that you want to choose. One thing, something that gives the world a foothold in your life. Only you know what it is. And the challenge is, is to come up with a 10-day plan of attack to strengthen your resolve and your response to this particular weakness or fear in your life. That if we were to go after it for 10 straight days, whatever it is, you give yourself a Bible study plan or whatever it is that you think is going to be a great spiritual plan, we do it and we get back together in 10 days and we see what God can do as a result. This could be an issue that you have maybe fighting against impurity or against lust a relationship that's causing you to struggle in your relationship with God. Uh, flirting with the line when it comes to worldliness. 
Maybe it's an anger issue, a rage issue, a temper that's been flaring, maybe even recently, a situation that's frustrating. Maybe it's just more general. Your walk with God has been suffering and your intimacy with him and your relationship with him through his word and through prayer is suffering. You choose something, one thing, and take the 10-day test alongside me. And let's ask, let's ask God in prayer that after the 10 days time, we will be 10 times better than when we started today. You guys ready to take the challenge with me? What do you guys think? All right. Amen. Wherever your faith is at, you choose something. Maybe your faith, hey, I'm not sure if I'm at that level, a huge character. You know, just choose something smaller then. And let's see God work. Whatever it is that you feel like you're going to do. Now, I know all of us clap. Some of us were like, I'm not clapping because that means I agree to the, uh, to the challenge. So I'm not ready yet. I'm going to pray about it and I'll get back to you. That's fine. It's between you and God. We're not going to write names down and write what your challenge is. We're just going to let God work in our lives. And I think he is honored when we have times like this where we focus and set our minds on something specific. In verse 17, as we close out this time and we enter into our time of communion in just a minute, it says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. We're calling this series Dream for many reasons. God himself had a big dream for Daniel, a big dream for his people, and a big dream for us. Daniel was able to interpret dreams, and we're going to read about that. Some amazing things happen over the following chapters. And I want to encourage you to start reading ahead and to go back as we go through each of these smaller times together and let the word sink into your heart and teach you what God's attempting to help us with. And I believe that hopefully after this time, this fall, studying this book out, we'll realize more specifically what God's dream is for us individually. And that his dream and desires for us will catch and become ours. We're going to pray in a minute for the communion. And I think like Daniel, Jesus stepped out in faith in an amazing and unique way. When all the pressure was on him and when all chaos was breaking loose around him and everything seemed out of control, Jesus stands in faith against his fear. He overcomes what perhaps is someone's worst nightmare. I don't know how it can get worse than people hating you, people persecuting you, people torturing you, and people killing you. But that's what our Lord went through. And he did it for us and it was part of his dream so that we could be here today. So as we go to him in communion, let's keep these things in mind. Be men and women of faith, men and women that dream. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, sometimes we wake up to what seems like a nightmare. I was feeling that last night, just hearing the news and watching what people are going through around New York and it made me think about 9-11. It made me think about terrorism. It made me think about the things that make me feel unsafe, the things that make me feel afraid. And your word just kept washing over me, reminding me that there is, wherever you are, New York, Minnesota, Baghdad, Beijing, anywhere, we are at risk because we're in the world. We're vulnerable because we're in a fallen place. And we so badly long and desperately pray to be with you one day. 
where we're away from all of this, where there is no tears and there is no violence, where there is no hatred. But God, we know that you've given us a purpose, a mission to be here, to be now, to be alive and to continue to bring your light and your faith to a world that suffers. God, please increase our faith. Please help us to believe in you and in your plan, even though sometimes we don't know what it is in moments, especially where circumstances seem dire and desperate and painful. God, increase our faith. Even now, as we pray to you, increase our faith as we remember Jesus who stepped out in faith against the unknown, against darkness and against death. And increase our faith as we go on a 10-day challenge to fight against whatever it is that perhaps is an Achilles heel pulling us away and back in to blend with the world around us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for our sins. Thank you for the blood, the body, and the emblems that we take now to remember what he went through for our sake. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.